Hi, I'm Asha Tomlinson. And I'm David Common. And we're hosts of CBC Marketplace. We're award-winning investigative journalists that want to help you avoid clever scams, unsafe products, and sketchy services. Our TV show has been Canada's top investigative consumer watchdog for more than 50 years. But this is our first podcast. CBC Marketplace podcast is available now on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC podcast. Hello, I'm Neil Kirksall. And I'm Chris Howden. This is As It Happens, the podcast edition. Keep your eyes off the prize. Yesterday, trailblazing scientist Katalin Kariko won a Nobel Prize. Today, her daughter, who's won some pretty impressive prizes herself, tells us her mom always told her to pursue what she loved and to not worry about the rest. Hard to reconcile with reconciliation. The federal government appointed Kimberly Murray to support indigenous communities as they search for unmarked graves. But she says Ottawa's whole approach is half-hearted. Tales from the crypto. FTX founder Sam Bankman-Fried is in court as his criminal trial gets underway. He's accused of orchestrating a multi-billion dollar fraud. Charges that could land him in prison for more than 100 years. Balancing the book, Neil talks to author Michael Lewis, who had unprecedented access to Mr. Bankman-Fried for his new book about the rise and fall of FTX. He'll join Neil for a feature conversation about how it all went so wrong. Tossed in space, in a first, a U.S. company has been fined for leaving space junk in orbit, and our guest hopes that will dissuade other companies from trashing the cosmos. And shake it till you make it. We know dancing is a great way to express joy, but a new study suggests dancing can also change your mood from the outside in, as in, if you dance sadly, you get sadder. As it happens, the Tuesday edition, radio that shows you how to get down. Catalin Carrico deserves to celebrate in as many ways as she wants. After decades of working in obscurity on the technology that led to the mRNA COVID vaccines, the trailblazing scientist won the Nobel Prize for Medicine. The news of her success, shared with her longtime collaborator, Drew Weissman, has made headlines around the world. And this morning on X, she shared one of her favorites, Rowing Mom Wins Nobel. Yes, Professor Carrico is also the mother of a rower. And not just any rower. Her daughter is Olympic gold medalist Susan Francia. We reached her in San Diego, California. Susan, how did you learn about your mom's honor? I'm embarrassed to say that actually somehow my phone was off and my (laughs) two-and-a-half-year-old son ran into my room and said, Mommy, Mommy, I'm hungry. And I said, okay, okay, you know, and I'm like, oh, it's now light out at 630 I tapped my phone and I just saw all of the messages and the congratulations. And I saw the missed calls from my mother. <laughs> and, you know, I, I had, you know, that feeling every child has when they see the missed calls from mother. And I was like, <laughs> oh, no. So I quickly called her back and I'm just crying. And my poor son, he's at this point, I think, traumatized. He has no idea what's going on. I'm crying. He's like, Mommy, it's okay. And I'm like, Grandma won the Nobel Prize. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. My head was just spinning. It was so incredible. You know, I was 
went to bed the night before thinking like, you know, there's a chance, but, you know, I always read all of these articles that are saying like, oh, these, the rules and how Salk never ended up getting a Nobel. And I had even written my mother an email that said, you know, I love you so much, no matter what, oh. you know, these awards don't define you, you know, and all the work that you did. And of course, now hindsight, I laugh at them. Uh, like, oh, yeah, well, I'm, I'm glad I sent her that anyway. No, absolutely. That's a beautiful message. And it's correct what you said. So what did she say to you when you finally called her back? Well, first it was, where were you? Um, <laughs> but also, you know, she was just so thrilled. And she just, I mean, she was over the moon. She couldn't even believe it. And, you know, my grandmother and she, she had passed away a few years ago, but she kept telling my mom, you know, you you worked so hard. You deserve the Nobel Prize. And my mother kept saying, like, Mom, you know, every scientist works very hard, and that's not what we get this for. <laughs> but it's incredible. You're a champion in your own fields, uh, in rowing. You have <laughs> Olympic gold from Beijing and London. So what does it feel like to not be the most famous person in your family anymore? Oh, I know, I know. <laughs> I, I Now I'm like, shoot, all right, I got to work harder, got to work harder. <laughs> oh, I think your family's pretty good. Yeah, I think, I think you've all worked pretty yeah. hard. Sport is a lot like science in that, you know, you, you have a passion for something and you you just go and you try and attain your goal and it's it's a grind. And honestly, I love that grind and my mother did too. My mother, you know, my dad would joke, oh, this is fun for you. This is, you know, she never stopped working on the weekends. It wasn't like her nine to five. And so that's what she always instilled in me was go find something that you're passionate about that brings you joy, but that also is like a challenge, you know, that's not just given to you in front of you. It's go, you want to be the best in the world in rowing, go, but have fun with it because otherwise you're not, you can't just attain that goal without loving it every day. That's so empowering. And she's modeling it for you as well. She's talked about, you know, she and her research partner have talked about all the years they spent working, you know, no funding, no publication, no attention, and focused on what they were passionate about, this mRNA technology. But was it daunting as well for you? That's a lot of pressure as well when you when you have such excellence, even without a Nobel in those years. Oh, it wasn't really daunting. It just seemed like, you know, my mom was taking it one day at a time, one small discovery, one paper. Mm-hmm. And for her, it was just a big culmination. And even mRNA technology, I mean, you know, there was a lot of criticism about how, oh, it was, you know, approved overnight. But it's like, no, in my mind, I always thought, no, this is my mom's life work. Many people have read she had a lot of failures and setbacks and people who didn't believe in her. And that's part of the journey. And and the question then reflects back on you of like, do you believe in this enough that when someone has put you down or said, no, this really is not going to work, it's not viable to say, no, actually, I'm going to keep working to prove that it is. And that's also that same passion that I took into my rowing. You know, there were battery tests, there were injuries yeah. and everything that would have said, you know what, maybe this isn't for you. But instead, I was like, no, like, I know I deserve to be in that boat. <laughs> and I know I'm going to get that gold medal. You certainly did. I, You know, we're all smiling 
I'm listening to to your story. We can't stop. We're beaming, and I know you are. I can hear it uh, through the phone, but inspired as well. But there's this great photograph that your mom put up online. You've got your gold medal around your neck. You're both of you are just smiling, and that's how I'm imagining you as as we speak. How does she feel though about this switch that now she is the one in the spotlight? Is that something she's comfortable with and excited about? It's interesting because she never. Oh, my goodness. I mean, she never, ever had this. And then, you know, in 2020, when, you know, mRNA looked like it could become a reality, all of a sudden there was more publicity. And she went from her only Twitter followers were my rowing friends, all like 20 (laughs) of them. And then all of a sudden, you know, she's in the New York Times and the Washington Post and here and there. And, you know, she's really taken it as a platform to encourage you know, women in science and, you know, girls to be interested and curious and to go out and, and pursue their passions despite any setbacks. So I'm really proud of actually, you know, how she's even gone about with this, you know, almost like newfound fame is, is really just taking it as, as an opportunity to express, hey, you know, let's let's find the next Nobel Prize winner. Let's find the next you know, cutting edge technology. I know you're not in the same place right now, but when you're all back together again, how are you going to celebrate? <gasps> oh, a big hug. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, it's funny. My mom is very, very low key and my parents haven't changed at all. They're still in the same small little suburban house and they're still, you know, driving the same 30 year old car. <laughs> For us, like, even the celebration is more just, like, being together. It's, you know, nothing fancy, but just, huh, okay, cool, we did that. You sure did. Uh, Susan, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Susan Francia is the daughter of Kathleen Carrico, the winner of the Nobel Prize for Medicine, and also an Olympic gold medalist in rowing. She's in San Diego, California. She was appointed by the federal government last year to support indigenous communities as they search for missing children and unmarked graves. Now, as that work continues, Kimberly Murray is calling on the federal government to step up and do better. Ms. Murray is the independent special interlocutor for missing children and unmarked graves and burial sites associated with Indian residential schools. She's also the former executive director of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. We reached Kimberly Murray in Toronto. Kimberly, you are you are very experienced in this field, so you know the difficulties more than most uh, of this work. But what, in your view, from your experience so far in this role, is the government doing to make your job harder than it needs to be? Well, I think that one of the main issues that communities are having is with respect to the limitation of the scope of the work they're allowed to do in looking for the missing children and unmarked burials. Currently, as it stands, communities are only able to access funding to do research on Indian residential schools recognized under the Indian Residential School Settlement Agreement and not uh, able to receive funding if the child died 
at another institution that they were transferred to from the residential school, such as the Indian hospitals, reformatories, sanatoriums. Mm -hmm. So it's causing a lot of difficulty uh, because it's only partial truths that the community is able to trace the child to. Once you started, what was the first signal or, or sign to you that there were going to be obstacles in your way? Well, you know, the records uh, is an ongoing concern that I hear from every community I go to. The limitations of the access to restricted files, the inability to share information with other communities, and the inability in some cases to even download the documents and, and have some sort of data sovereignty over them. So it's very limiting for them. It's limiting their ability to do the full investigation when they don't have any kind of powers to compel these records. Uh, from the multiple mm -hmm. institutions that are housing them. Is there a specific story? I know there are many, many stories and a long list of, of things you've been up against so far in your teams. But is there a story of a child who, who falls outside of the federal government's focus, as you were saying in, a moment ago, that illustrates just what you're up against? There is, uh, and you know, I leave it for the families to share their information, but there is a, a boy that was taken by the federal government to a residential school in northern Ontario and then was transferred down to Toronto, to a hospital in Toronto, and then transferred to a mental health inst institution and then to another uh, hospital in southern Ontario for children with disabilities. And he's buried and the family wants to exhume his body and Canada's refusing to pay for the exhumation saying that the province of Ontario needs to pay because he died in a provincial institution. It's quite sad because Canada said, well, first proof that he was in an Indian residential school. And how is a family supposed to find those records? I mean, skilled researchers can't even get access to all the records. But I was able to actually find proof that the boy was in uh, a residential school first. Um, and so, you know, the family with help of leadership are in conversations with Ontario and it's time's ticking, you know, the winter's going to come <laughs> uh, and they won't be able to uh, rebury him in their home community if we don't get him exhumed before uh, the snow comes. This is all, of course, part, part of your mandate about developing a legal framework for these sites. So ultimately, at the end of your time, what is success for you? Well, I think the new legal framework that we need has to have a number of things contained in it. There has to be protection for the burial grounds that are not currently cemeteries. There has to be better access to information laws um, and some Indigenous status sovereignty over the information so we can return the records to the communities. There's also, you know, we have a lot of concerns with respect to records being destroyed and so we need to stop the destruction of records. I think, you know, that Canada uh, needs to improve its funding program, uh, lifting up the number of restrictions that they have, and really let communities have some sovereignty over their decision making. Because there's a lot of requisites that uh, Canada puts on communities about who they can work with and who they can't work with, which is, is problematic. The government put you in this role, the federal government did. So why do you think that those obstacles, even the basic bureaucratic ones, not so basic for people trying to get documents, are still there if they want you to do this work? 
Well, you know, I think a lot of it is that they don't even understand the whole history of <laughs> the system. Um, and we're all learning as as more eyes are looking at the records. You know, we just need to keep educating them. I also think it's finger pointing that keeps happening. You know, we see this all the time when it comes to uh, Indigenous peoples and realities. There's this finger pointing between the federal and provincial territorial governments about who's responsible. It's really important that they stop that and they all do the right thing. I take the position that Canada should be stepping up and covering all the costs of these searches and they can go fight on their own with the provinces and territories to recoup some of that money. You know, it was ultimately Canada that was responsible for First Nations, Métis and Inuit children being taken to all these different institutions. They often paid like the per diem, uh, the maintenance of the child in provincial jails and provincial reformatories and orphanages. And as I said, with the case that I told you about, mm -hmm. they transferred the children. It was the Indian agent. It was uh, INAC, Indigenous Affairs, that always gave the approval to pay for that child to be taken on a bus, plane, boat, car, whichever way they were transferred to these institutions. And it was Canada that had the policy that they would not return the children home if they died at any of these institutions. You met with the Minister of Crown Indigenous Relations on Wednesday, Gary Anandasangari. Did you get a sense that the government hears your concerns, the concerns you've gone public with now? Yeah, I mean, I, I felt it was a good meeting. I felt that he was open, asked a lot of questions, asked me for, you know, some ideas for solutions. And he indicated to me that it would just be, you know, it, it was our first meeting and we would continue to meet. So, you know, I fall under the Department of Justice there who appointed me and yeah. I did meet with the new Attorney General as well, very early on when he was appointed. I felt that he was committed to the work. I feel as always, is one thing for the ministers to say something, is just getting to the bureaucrats. I feel sometimes the ministers don't even know what the department's doing below them. Um, well, that's troubling, so no? It's very troubling. <laughs> uh, you know, the more meetings and the more we can open up the communication, I think the better. Kimberly, I appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you. Kimberly Murray is the Independent Special Interlocutor for Missing Children and Unmarked Graves and Burial Sites Associated with Indian Residential Schools. A National Indian Residential School Crisis Line is available to provide support to survivors and those affected. The number for that 24-hour service is 1-866-925-4419. We received a statement from the Minister of Crown Indigenous Relations, Gary Anantasangari. He called his recent meeting with Ms. Murray productive and said, quote, Advancing reconciliation is at the heart of everything we do as a government. I look forward to working with the special interlocutor to ensure progress and support for First Nations, Inuit, and Métis as they uncover the truth and work toward healing. Unquote. A U.S. company is being fined for illegal dumping, which would not usually be big enough news for as it happens to bother covering. But in this case, the junk that Dish Network didn't clean up is a satellite orbiting some 36,000 kilometers above the Earth. In a first, the U.S. Federal Communications Commission issued a fine of over $200,000 after the company failed to relocate the dead satellite far enough out of orbit. Megan Argo is an astrophysicist at the University of Central Lancashire. We reached her in Macclesfield, England. 
Megan, why does the FCC care so much about this particular piece of space junk? Well, this particular piece of what is now space junk Mm -hmm. was a satellite that when it came to the end of its operational lifetime, there was an agreement that they would put it into what's called a disposal orbit. So this is a a high satellite. This is in geostationary orbits. This is a long way from the surface of the Earth, 36,000 kilometers. This particular one, it failed to get there, which is a problem. This is the first time the FCC is issuing a fine like this, if, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, is that because no one, this has never happened before or have they just started fining the, these companies? It's it's new arrangements. I think so the FCC in the past, I mean, th- this happens on a regular basis. We've been launching satellites into space since Sputnik 1 in 1957 and half of the satellites that we've launched into space are currently no longer functional. So there's an awful lot of space junk up there in yeah. orbit. Um, not all of it's been launched by America. So there are other countries that have launched stuff up there as well. So and all of that is, is still there in space. And some of it will gradually come down over the next you know, years to the next decades. Um, but the FCC has recently started making these agreements with companies. And they're, they're, they, it used to be the arrangement that you had 25 years to bring down um, a satellite or to make a satellite safe after its end of operational lifetime. And they've recently reduced that to five years. So they're putting much more constraints on these operators as to how quickly they have to remove non-functional satellites from, from Earth space. Um, and this one, they, they agreed an extension of the license to operate. So this was originally launched in 2002, this mm-hmm. particular satellite. This is Dish Network. They, yeah, Dish Network satellite. So they, they had Echo Star 7 is the, the name of this particular satellite. So launched in 2002. Um, it was only planned to last for, for so many years. When they reached the end of its original lifespan, it was still operational. So they had an agreement from FCC to continue operations through to 2022. Um, but again, the agreement that was signed in 2012 for that extension, part of the agreement was that at the end of that, they would use deorbit maneuvers and they will put it into one of these disposal orbits and that was supposed to happen in may 2022 what they discovered in february 2022 but that they didn't actually have enough fuel left on board to take it up to that disposal uh-huh. orbit so dish tried to as you said do what it was supposed to do uh and the court has found that it or the fcc found that it it could have done more just to spell it out for us or were they actually in the wrong in your view I think, yeah, the, the fact that the FCC have actually used these powers is is significant. It shows the industry that they're, they're going to take this stuff seriously. Um, I, say, I think the company DISH themselves admitting liability in this case probably led to the fine being the size that it is. It was only $150,000, which is not very much for, for a large company. So the fact that they have done this and said, you know, we are going to find people if they if they don't obey the license conditions that we set out is is hopefully going to make other companies sit up and take notice. Of course, the FCC only has jurisdiction over U.S. based companies. So thinking more broadly about, you know, the space environment, if, if a U.S. satellite hits another U.S. satellite, it can affect a lot more than just U.S. communications infrastructure. It can potentially affect communications around the whole world. So. So what we really need in the long term is international agreements on things like the level of fines and the, the consequences for companies if they don't take their responsibility seriously in, in keeping the lower mm-hmm. orbit basically sustainable for the future. It can all seem very far away for, for people you know, sitting in their home offices or on their couch. Why should all of that debris floating around there concern people here on Earth? 
Yeah, it, it matters because so much of our modern world is dependent on satellite communications. So a lot of the internet that we use on a regular basis, a lot of the banking traffic that goes on, um, things that are used in sort of disaster relief scenarios. So mapping where, you know, earthquakes happen, where volcanoes happen, sending aid where it's needed. A lot of that information comes from satellite networks. If we end up in a scenario where there is too much debris up in space for satellites to function adequately, then we end up with all of that communications infrastructure potentially being destroyed. And not only that, if we want to send humans away from the Earth and visit, go back to the moon, go on to Mars, go and explore the rest of the solar system, or even just unmanned spacecraft out there, if we surround the Earth with fast-moving debris, then that becomes impossible. So this matters in the sense of our everyday communications, but also in the longer term aspects of our you know, exploration of our home in the universe. In space and on Earth, it pays to be neat and tidy. Yes? Indeed. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Megan, thank you. No problem. Megan Argo is an astrophysicist at the University of Central Lancashire. We reached her in Macclesfield, England. When you're happy, you burst through the front door full of energy, throw your coat on the hook, put on a happy song, and start dancing. Stomp joyously around the living room, jump up and down on the couch and do high kicks on the coffee table until it collapses, but you don't even care. Dancing is just how you express happiness. It's not like that when you're sad, though. On days like that, you trudge through your front door, throw your coat in the toilet, put on a sad song, and dance very sadly. But I would walk 500 miles, and I would walk 500 just to be the man who walked a thousand miles to fall down at your door when I'm working. Sad dancing is different. You stumble through the living room, slow dance with a couch pillow until it's sodden with tears, and then spin around and around until you crash into the coffee table you just replaced, destroying it. These are the ways we dance to express our feelings. But can we dance to change our feelings? Researchers with the Max Planck Institute for Empirical Aesthetics, which is an institute, wanted to know. So they did a study. They asked their subjects to learn some easy dance moves. Then they asked those subjects to act out happiness or sadness through those dance moves. And they found that the people who danced cheerfully became more cheerful and the glum dancers got glummer. Now we know that dance doesn't just reflect emotion, it can generate emotion. You want to be happy? Dance happily. If you want to be angry, dance angrily. If you want to be scared, dance scaredly. We're in total control now. Whatever's wrong, we don't have to dance around the problem anymore. We can dance right at it. You never need a reason to dance. I wish they would have uh, selected me to be in that uh, study. What a fun well, you study, can dance right? In here if you I, want. Although I, do. I would, do not recommend that sad <laughs> version of the Proclaimers. No, song. not one of your favorites.
I'm Johanna Wagstaff. And hi there, I'm Rohith Joseph. And we're asking for 10 minutes of your day to go through the 10 things that the UN recommends we can all do when it comes to climate change. Please don't leave. No. And also the things (laughs) aren't new. We are just wired to not do them. We promise you to help you figure out your brains and you and your people can make better choices to combat climate change. 10 Minutes to Save the Planet is available now on CBC Listen and everywhere you get your podcasts. Less than a year ago, he was living in a $30 million condo in the Bahamas, overseeing an empire valued in the tens of billions. Today, Sam Bankman-Fried was in a New York City federal courtroom. Jury selection began today in the case, which sees the 31-year-old accused of money laundering and defrauding customers and investors through his FTX cryptocurrency exchange. If convicted on all seven counts, he faces more than 100 years in prison. Today is also the day that Michael Lewis's new book goes on sale. It's called Going Infinite, The Rise and Fall of a New Tycoon. And to write it, Mr. Lewis spent time with Sam Bankman-Fried before, during, and after the collapse of FTX. Michael Lewis is also the author of Moneyball, The Big Short, and Liar's Poker. We reached him in Berkeley, California. Michael, the Sam Bankman-Fried that we saw in court today, or saw sketches of it at least, had a short haircut, a nice suit. That is... A very different picture than the one you paint of the of the Sam Bankman-Fried you spent a lot of time with putting this book together. Just give our listeners a snapshot of the person you saw on a regular basis. Well, he looked like he fell out of a dumpster most of the time. He had he had they, people would call his hair an afro, but it was it was really just kind of a mess. He just didn't care about it. And is he dressed in you know t-shirts and cargo shorts and limp white socks even when he was going to dinner with Hillary Clinton? And um, he 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 made one exception. The only time I would ever saw him dress up in the way he's dressed up, in, apparently in the courtroom, is when he would testify in front of Congress. But even then, it was as if someone had told him, "You need to wear a suit," without telling him how to wear a suit. So or to shy would, his you, shoes. Like (laughs) the shoes would be handed a pair of dress shoes and they're right out of the box and they hadn't been laced and he'd just leave them unlaced with the laces kind of swaddled off to one side. So it was, it seems like it might've been an act, but it wasn't an act. If you go back all the way back and he's all, he was always like that. Uh, Just like radically indifferent to his personal appearance Mm. and hygiene. Yes, you do go into those details quite a bit in the book for better or worse. We all got a very clear, uh, clear image so your friend asks you to to meet with this with this young guy. Check him out. He says uh, you do, and you say in your words right at the top of the book that you were quote totally sold by Sam Bankman Fried very quickly. So what sold you on him? Because it doesn't sound like it was his appearance. <laughs> no, it wasn't his appearance, and I was so, I was sold on him as the beginning of a story. So when I say I was sold, I really I thought I'd I'd been thinking before I met him that the next book I wanted to do, I wanted it to be very character driven. And I was going to find a character in a situation and let the story take care of itself. So he lands on my doorstep. I've never heard of him. I've never heard of his business FTX. And I just started picking his brain about his experience in life. And children, the child of two Stanford professors grew up kind of was destined to be an academic collides with this movement called effective altruism and he gets in his head that his job in life is to make as much money as possible to give it away to causes that will uh minimize the risk of human extinction and uh, whatever so he's saying and 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 he discovers wall street 
and an aptitude for high frequency trading and then stumbles into the crypto markets and within a few years has gone from basically having zero dollars to being valued at 22 and a half billion dollars and the money is being thrown around in the most extraordinary ways in american politics in american media uh, um, uh, to to lots of celebrities uh he's disrupting finance and i just thought like i don't know where this is going but it's such a peculiarly modern story mm -hmm. like he came out of nowhere 18 months ago he didn't really have anything and now he's he's messing with like the basic structures institutions of the society and nobody knows who he is to the yeah. point where my friend is asking me to evaluate him before he gives him 300 million dollars yeah and you gave him the go-ahead is that friend still talking to you you know it's funny uh, uh it's you ask a sensitive delicate question actually I did give him the go-ahead. My friend has since learned that maybe you don't ask me for financial advice. Mm. I, I've tried to tell people over the years I'm not very good at that. He's, yes, we're still friends, but yes, he remembers that I gave him really bad advice. Okay. Well, I'm glad, I'm glad I asked. Let's dig into a little bit of what you just said there, because I think a lot of people are will be learning about this this philosophy, effective altruism really for the first time. Billionaires, you know, Steve Jobs, Elon Musk, as you well know, the Koch brothers have all trying to tried to throw their money around to shape the world in the way that they would, would like to see it. What makes him different, Sam Bankman-Fried? Well, it is this first. I don't think any of those people particularly are thinking, although Elon Musk flirted with it, uh, are thinking the effective altruist uh, idea that that your goal is to save as many lives as possible and you can count this like you can actually measure your effects uh the Koch brothers want i don't know save america from liberalism I, you know they, they have their own ideas about what they want to do but the effect of altruists it's really it, it's a uh it's a movement some would call it a cult but it's a it's a if it is a cult it's a cult that's sort of rooted in reason and capable of changing its mind and they argue all the time about what you should be doing and what the best thing to do is but it is this measurement it's like this defaulting to math to answer mm -hmm. the question of what you do and i don't think any of the, either jobs or musk or the Koch brothers really have ever defaulted to math in the way that sam and his crowd did well the math as we'll as we'll learn may have may have been faulty we'll get there in a moment but over the course of interviewing Sam Bankman-Fried and reporting to put this book together, how did you know he was being honest with you, that when you asked him a question, he was telling you the truth? You just check, right? I mean, if he says, I went and had dinner with Mitch McConnell and we talked about yeah. this, you go interview somebody who was at the dinner. There were often, almost all the time, multiple eyes on any particular situation. Like, I'll give you a simple example. Um, it's simple and broad. I asked him, like, Give me a list of people who knew who can describe you before the age of 18. And he said, nobody, basically. He didn't have and he didn't have very he, many friends. He didn't have. No, it wasn't that he didn't have any friends. He had almost no social interaction, any meaningful. He was isolated beyond belief. And that sounds like, oh, that can't be true. And then I go interview people in his high school class and they say he was socialated, socially isolated beyond belief, like nobody had connections with him. Um, so, you know, it's just like over and over, he would say things and I would go mm -hmm. check him out. And the problem, so he, he wasn't a person, this is going to sound very strange given what happens, but he wasn't a person who lied. Like I've had people tell me things that aren't true and I find out they aren't true or people exaggerate that's more likely or misremember. 
he had a really he was really high fidelity in his recounting of things. But how do you know in terms of of, of motives? It's one thing to be able to verify events, of course, as a journalist. But it's interesting because in the book throughout it, there are these competing ideas of what he was like. You know, was he well-intentioned but terrible at his job or dishonest uh, and manipulative? One person said he was 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 kind, right? He was was definitely manipulative. But he he was – but uh, there was never – he never flinched in his mm-hmm. in the in his devotion to effective altruism, and he was. I mean, the minute he starts making money on Wall Street at Jane Street, he gives he gives as much as he can away to effective altruist causes. He was he, there was never. Um, although there was a brief moment where some of his effective altruists quite questioned that motive, mostly nobody did because he seemed to just live for it. That it wasn't. There was never. If he was, if it was all a ruse, it was a bizarre ruse because he seemed to believe it. Um, Mm. And and so it's not the story's mo- you don't understand the interest of the story unless you understand the the, the, the kind of like fidelity of the motives. He believed the it. problem. But let me finish the mm. question of as to his honesty. It's interesting because the problem with him wasn't that he would say things that weren't true. It's that he wouldn't he wouldn't answer the question sometimes like he that you ask a question like, oh, I don't know. What's the conflict of interest between your private hedge fund Alameda Research and your and your crypto exchange FTX and he would drill down in a very technical way into the into how there wasn't the same sort of conflicts of interest between those two that existed between hedge funds in the United States and then say the New York Stock Exchange and he would have ignored or or sort of distracted you from the general question you asked so he's so, good at just evading that? Evading. He's That's good right. at evasion. He's very. He was vi- not just good. He was great at not at not answering the question he didn't want to answer. However, I put a there's a footnote <laughs> to this, and the footnote is if you asked it really, really well, and this happened to him over and over in media, if you asked him a, re- a really precise question, even when the answer was very damning, he would give it. And so there are these examples of him having said things in the media about, you know, certain parts of crypto being a Ponzi scheme, for example, that he never really should have said if he was just wanting to kind of promote crypto. Mm -hmm. Uh, But he says them because the person asked the question in the right way. And I always felt with him like I was, you ever play that game Battleship? Where a long time ago, yeah. But you know the game, right? You you have to guess the coordinates and like A4 and, and, if you ask, if you say A4, he will say, and you hit his battleship, he will say, you hit my battleship. But if, you, if you're if you one peg away, he won't say, oh, you're close and let me explain. Uh, so it's, it, he wasn't, it wasn't that he wasn't tricky to interview or get to the bottom of. It was just, it was just different from the way most people are. When you talk about the the amount and level of access, the depth of the access he gave you, you know, you, you obviously wrote the big short bestsellers about outsiders who had huge success by going against the current, doing things differently. Do you think he gave you the access he did because he thought maybe telling his story to you and you putting it in uh, into your words in a book would give him legitimacy, that it would build his brand? Sure. Sure. I mean, look, you don't give, you don't let someone roam around your life the way he did uh, without asking. And he asked no questions about what I was doing. And there were no stri- restrictions. And he never, he never, he never said you can or can't do this or you can or can't write about this. He never inquired what I was writing. Um, so he, you don't do that unless you think like, oh, it will turn out well. Um, 
but he let me in when times were good. And, um, and he let me, and it wasn't just him let me in. It was like all the people mm -hmm. around him and his business let me in and his parents and his, his psychiatrist let me in. Um, and it's not that these people didn't have shaded views of Sam. I think he had a very specific motive. And I think his motive was, um, at the time I met him, he was, he was building what seemed to be the most trusted institution in crypto. That's the weird thing. It wasn't just like another crypto exchange. It was the most trusted crypto exchange. And he was trying to legitimize it by, by, by acquiring lots of government licenses and getting himself regulated. And that was going to be his competitive advantage is he was the regulated crypto exchange. And the holy grail was to get regulated in the United States and legitimized in the United States. And I think he probably thought I don't know this. He never said it. He probably thought that my books are the kind of books that regulators read. And that if I had, if I wrote a book about him, it might nudge the needle in one direction or the other with the regulators. I don't know if that's true. I don't know if he actually thought it or that, but that, that was in the back of my mind. Mm. Uh, but you know, I never ask. I, everybody lets me in. Uh, big short people <laughs> let me in. The moneyball people let me in. No, nobody really ever asked exactly what I was doing, and uh, and I don't ask why they're letting me in because if you ask, they might kick you out. That's true. You are listening to As It Happens. I'm Neil Kirksal, and I'm speaking with Michael Lewis, author of the new book Going Infinite: The Rise and Fall of a New Tycoon. It's just shocking the the numbers, even as I was reading the book and as we talk about them now and the and the level of loss. But one thing that was really interesting to me as I, as I was reading is you talk about how people turned to created, worked in crypto because of distrust in traditional financial systems, and then the people involved lost everything because they were too trusting in this. So what ultimately do you think this this trial will mean for the cryptocurrency world? Well, they, it seems to be cathartic for them. And I think that this happens over and over again. San, FTX isn't the first exchange to have lost its customers' money. There's like a history of this. And the, the crypto people, instead of instead of concluding that they shouldn't have their money on a crypto exchange, just move to the next one. Uh, and this, the punishment, the for, a lot of the times the, the founders aren't punished. Sometimes they are and sometimes they are. Uh, but, and, and they're, they're kind of crypto scoundrels who have successfully like moved themselves to Dubai or the bowels of Central Europe to places where they don't ex they don't have extradition treaties with the United States and who kind of gotten off. I think that crypt crypt to crypto, the trial means, oh, the evil person is being slayed so crypto can emerge without evil people in it. That's the kind of narrative that that, that I think is making a lot of people feel good about the trial. Uh, but the problem is that what it really does for everybody else is just to associate crypto with fraud. Uh, so I think that I'm not sure if the average yeah. person's takeaway is going to be, oh, now, now crypto is a safe place to put my life saving. At, later on in the book, we meet John Ray, who's brought in to run FTX after it, mm. it declares bankruptcy. And he talks about Sam Bankman-Fried going into a, one of a few bins. Good guy, naive guy, crook. Which bin would you put him in? So in John Ray's, that was, that's the way John Ray mm -hmm. thinks of the world. And John Ray, the point of that anecdote is that John Ray, yeah. the minute he got the job right after FTX collapsed, looked at a picture of Sam and decided he was a crook on the basis of that. Mm -hmm. And he instantly, he, he instantly um, saw criminal and instantly uh, sought to help the prosecution 
uh, prosecute yeah. their case. And it was curious to me uh, because his job is just to get the money back for the credit for the for the credit for the creditors. But you and, but you know him so you know him much much more than than John Ray does. You've gotten to know him over all this time. You describe yeah, the lack those, of empathy. Have, you describe John Ray's bins in my mind. I yeah. think people are a little more complicated than that. But do you, when uh, you describe him without empathy, and you describe this guy who who loved to create puzzles, he was dealing with these huge issues of even when he was a little kid, like weighing the broader issues of the world, but understood that people could be deluded, as you talk about at one point. Do you think that there was a master plan here? No. It, no, it, not a master plan. I think they crawfish their way into this mess. Uh, I mean, he, 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 look, if there was a master plan, it was a really weird master plan, because when they even conceive of the idea of creating an exchange, which ends up, mm -hmm. being, ends up being the source of all the problems, they don't even... You know, they were creating the exchange so they could trade on it. They were trying to get other people to own it. They didn't even want to do that. Mm -hmm. uh, and it, it was they couldn't get anybody to do it. They did it themselves. So it's this is all happens like Sam Beckenfried didn't set out in crypto to create an exchange to defraud people. He said it, it's much more complicated than that. You said you sound like you have a little bit of empathy for him. Do you feel that you may have gotten too close to your subject here? Uh, are you asking that question because you think I did? Doesn't matter what I think. I don't get to have opinions. <laughs> <laughs> so no, I think it's that's a that I think it's a silly idea that I, that um, you can't get that you can get too close. You got I got to learn about him. You know, the whole point of of like spending time with him is to be able to deliver him in a really clear way to the reader. So I, I but, didn't feel I didn't owe him anything. You know, in fact, yeah. all the pressure, all the pressure on me as a writer was to throw him under a bus. Yeah. Like people would celebrate if I could, it, <laughs> me doing horrible things to Sam Bankman fried on the page. The trick for me was to present him in a way that was sort of neutral in that uh, leaving the reader the possibility of having their own conclusions about who he was and why he did what he did without me getting in the way of that. Do you think you did that though? When you when you say that, that he didn't have a master plan and things like that, you know, you appeared on stage with him uh, in the Bahamas. You told 60 Minutes that he had... You know, he had come to you for advice in a way. So I, I think I totally did it in the book. And I know I did it because I had already had people telling me I've had such radically diff different reactions to it. I've had people say he should be lynched and I've had people and I've had people say they can't believe they're going to put him in jail. So it, the the the, it, the book is, seems to be functioning as a sort of Rorschach mm -hmm. test for people. I, I uh, you know, that the 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 story the the conceit of the story is i like here you're the jury you figure it out uh don't let me get in the way and i don't think i did get in the way it is it, you know when when people who work so closely with him have pleaded guilty you know have turned against him you know do you think that do you think you went far enough in the book that's all in illustrating the book. well no of course i read i read that but did yeah, you think it's all you... in the book and, and and the bad things they say about him are in the book yes. so, so that's all that's all for the reader to like sort through why do you think there's that sense out there i've read it in more than one article that you so, may be getting too close to him here so here's what it is um it's it's essentially mob psychology that very quickly people rush to judgment without knowing very much and very quickly uh, the people who were the loudest on the subject were the people who knew only a bit. And uh, the more informed people were, the closer they were to the situation and the people involved, the more they saw it was there was some shading to it. And it was more complicated than, say, Twitter knew. But 
especially in crypto land, uh, there was a desire to lynching. And the mob really does not like people standing up and saying, wait, you ought to just think about this. I don't know what it would have been like to, I don't know, say to the people of Salem that the woman wasn't a witch or we should think a little bit more about this. But you get a reaction to that. And it's not a happy reaction. It's a very angry reaction. But my 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 um, my duty isn't to the the mob. And it's not my job to stoke the mob's anger. My job is to sort of explain and lay out and leave it to the reader to understand something. Uh, and I think that's what I did. That 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 I get. But is it is it right to compare him to to the women who were burned at the stake? I'm just, it's an example of a mob. <laughs> yeah, it's that the, the mob mob sentiment. It do, does not even when the mob is attacking a target that you kind of would like to have attacked. The mob is an ugly thing, and they don't want to hear. They don't want to hear anything that disrupts their narrative in any way, even if that narrative is very false. Uh, so, uh, you know, uh, it's... Uh, there's I nuance think, there, you say. Uh, my God, there's nuance. There's, uh, and they don't want to hear it. Uh, so, of course, there's nuance here. And they don't want to hear it. And and so that's what you're seeing right now. And it will pass. Uh, it will have its moment and it will pass. Michael Lewis, I appreciate your time. Thank you. Michael Lewis's new book is called Going Infinite, The Rise and Fall of a New Tycoon. It's out today. We reached him in Berkeley, California. After an unexpectedly sudden departure, the House of Commons has a new speaker, Quebec Liberal MP Greg Fergus. Anthony Rota resigned from the position last Tuesday after he invited a Ukrainian-Canadian veteran who served in a Nazi unit into the House. Mr. Fergus becomes the first black person to sit in the speaker's chair. As is tradition in Parliament, Greg Fergus was dragged to that seat, feigning reluctance by the Prime Minister and the Leader of the Opposition. Here's part of his subsequent speech for the record. I'm really looking forward to working collaboratively with all of you. And thank you for the applause. I know that uh, in politics, the, uh, there are only two times when people are, give you a strong applause and they're happy to see you. The day you arrive, and of course the day you leave. <laughs> the speaker, to use the old hockey analogy, is nothing more than a referee. And if there's one thing I know, is that nobody pays good money to go see the referee. <laughs> they go to see the stars, you, the players on the ice. Respect is the fundamental part of what we do here. We need to make sure that we treat each other with respect, that we show Canadians the example. Because there can be no dialogue unless there's a mutual understanding of respect. If there can be no ability to pursue the arguments, to make your points be heard, unless we all agree to extend to each other that sense of respect and decorum. So I'm going to be working hard on this, and I need all of your help to make this happen. 
Newly elected Speaker of the House of Commons, Greg Fergus. Then he started work, opening up question period, by recognizing Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. The Right Honourable Prime Minister. <laughs> right Honourable. Mon premier erreur. Ah, my first mistake. The Right Honourable Prime Minister. Monsieur le Président, au nom du gouvernement et Mr. Speaker, on behalf of the government and all members in this House, I wish to congratulate you for your election. New House Speaker Greg Fergus making his first mistake on the job. A refreshingly minor mistake, though, given the past couple of weeks. The Depot Community Food Centre in Montreal is not your traditional food bank. Instead of hampers of donated items, it has a market. And instead of describing its users as clients or beneficiaries, it calls them participants. It's all part of a model that's been keeping Montrealers fed in a more dignified way since the Depot was founded in 1986. And it's an approach that a growing number of food centres and food banks across the country have been embracing. But now, for the first time in its 37-year history, the Depot staff are having to turn some participants away. Tasha Lackman is the organization's general director. We reached her in Montreal. Tasha, can you walk me through what it is like for, for someone who comes into the Depot's market? How does it work? We really strive to provide a really positive, dignified experience for all of our participants. So people, um, we think about people having a lot of agency and being able to be involved in, in their experience. So somebody will walk into our space, and we have a community meal program going at the same time. Sometimes there's volunteers playing live music. We really try and create a welcoming vibe. Someone greets them at the door. So there's a greeter. Right away, they're made to feel as comfortable as possible. Um, and then if they have an appointment for shopping in our, our market, they'll, they'll go through. Um, hopefully they don't have to wait too long, although sometimes we do have a wait. And then they'll be great, greeted by another volunteer who will take them through their shopping experience. And we're really trying to create a, an environment where you take what you need, um, but you can also give back. And so a lot of our participants are volunteering and are, are contributing in all kinds of ways, giving us feedback. And that's actually based on the feedback we got from participants um, is how we created this grocery store model because people want choice. And just because you're poor doesn't mean you should be eating uh, poor quality food or, or eating handouts. You have had to turn people away recently. How do you handle that? It's really hard to be turning people away. Um, we, everyone who comes to this work is doing it because they want to make the community stronger and more resilient. They want to be helping people uh, and giving back. And so it's extremely demoralizing to be in a situation where the numbers just keep going up and uh, we don't have the resources to continue to meet that demand uh, based on our space, based on our budget, based on our human resources. We are... Um, really strapped at all levels, and it's demoralizing for the people on the front lines who are having to turn people away, not to mention for the people who are in crisis who are not able to get um, the support that they need. What do they tell you? I mean, emotions are running high in our space. We just uh, yesterday did a workshop for the staff on how to deal with microaggressions, and, and the main message from the animator was there's nothing micro about a microaggression because... The person who feels it feels it really strongly. 
So even if we recognize that people are in crisis in our space and they're coming in, but they're being aggressive or, or expressing frustration towards our staff, that is taking a huge toll on, on the people who are having to deal with that day in and day out. So you have been trying to take steps to avoid that scenario whenever possible, uh, obviously. So, so what kinds of things have you been doing to make sure people who need help are getting that help? You know, during the pandemic, we pivoted and we were doing all deliveries. So we were delivering, you know, seven, six, seven hundred um, food baskets to, to families and individuals every week to their doors. And, you know, since then we reopened and we had had some time to reflect and refine our programs. And so we changed from a basket that was pre-made that we were you know, delivering and then, you know, before that, giving out pre-made baskets to a, a way of giving our baskets that is really through this grocery store model where people have an allocation of money, um, of depot dollars, and get to pick exactly what they need for their families. Um, and we've had to try and, you know, get as many people through the door as the numbers keep spiking. So if you think about two years ago, we, we did about 7,200 emergency food baskets. Uh, last year we did over 10,000, and this year we've already exceeded uh, 12,000. So we've done more in the first half of the year than we did in all of last year. Mm -hmm. We have to keep adjusting. So people used to be able to come twice a month to, to use our services. Now they can only come once per month, and that doesn't mean that they get twice as much. Once a month they get one allocation, uh, and we've cut our food basket size by one-third so that we can stretch our resources, uh, and we've also had to cap the number of people who come in every day, and that's why we're starting to turn people away. Have you seen a change in who is coming as well? I mean, anecdotally, we're seeing more and more people um, with employment income. We know that minimum wage is not high enough and that we people who are working one or multiple jobs on minimum wage are not able to make ends meet. Uh, we have a lot of families coming also, almost 30%, actually over 30% now of our um, participants who are coming for emergency food are coming from Ukraine, as well as a ton of people from Latin America, Iran. So we're really seeing the direct effects of war, mm. famine, social unrest, and uh, the affordability crisis at our doorstep in real time. Quebec did recently announce, as you know, uh, in July, $34 million in funding for, for the province's food banks. So will that make a difference in your view? That money doesn't trickle to us. The Quebec government provides only, you know, 100000 a little over $100,000 on our $3.5 million budget. But will it, it help goes, people who, who are using food banks? I think it will help people moderately who are using food banks. It's a drop in the bucket, and what we really need to see is much more systemic uh, solutions. We know food insecurity is a, an issue of poverty, um, and we can't continue to rely on frontline organizations who are providing this frontline service and dealing with people in need in our community without um, addressing the root causes and also without giving us appropriate resources. So what are you telling staff and people who use your depot about what is to come? We don't think the situation is going to get better. We're really thinking about how to pivot. We're thinking about how to start to have people start to pay or, or contribute in some financial way to 
our services and programs. Um, we've, we've introduced some voluntary contributions with mixed success, but if, if this continues, which we think it will, we're going to have to start to enforce that uh, more and more. It is not normal that one in six people are experiencing food insecurity in Canada. That is an outrageous number. Um, and we know that what we're seeing, even as our numbers are doubling and tripling, is only the tip of the iceberg. Mm. Tasha, I appreciate your time. Thank you. Nice talking to you, Neil. Likewise. Take care. Bye. Tasha Lackman is the General Director of the Depot Community Food Centre in Montreal. That's where we reached her. This Saturday, Stone Man Willie will finally get a proper burial, and it's about time he's been waiting patiently for 128 years. Stone Man Willie died in 1895 and was accidentally mummified during an experiment. Having no way to leave on his own, he's been in Reading, Pennsylvania ever since, becoming a kind of local celebrity. Willie died under an alias. Until now, his identity was unknown. But this week, the Amen Funeral Home is allowing people to say their final goodbyes to him before he's laid to rest under a tombstone featuring his real name. Kyle Blankenbiller is the director of the Amen Funeral Home. We reached him in Reading, Pennsylvania. Kyle, in just a few days, people won't be able to come to the funeral home to visit Willie. How many people have come by so far? We've had a lot of interest, um, both in phone calls and visits. Uh, last night, we had about, i say, 100 to 125 folks uh, come in for the stated viewing time in the evening of 6 to 9 p.m. How are people responding to the fact that, that he's going to be buried? They are really on board with us. Um, it, was, it was a concern of ours because Willie's been here for 128 mm-hmm. years and is such a revered part of the city of Reading, much less our greater surrounding community. So... We weren't sure how this would be received uh, in the community, but the uh, supportive response is all we've gotten so far. Um, Much like ourselves here at the funeral home, we don't like to see him leave. Um, It'll be strange here without him uh, in the building, but we just, uh, the consensus has been within the community and, and among our staff as well, that this gentleman just deserves to finally rest in peace and 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 just have his day. Yeah, it, it's such a sad story and a macabre one in a way. And some, you know, when I first saw the pictures, I have to say, in the, in the coverage, I was quite taken aback that it was on display for so long. Yeah, and we don't we we had not allowed pictures mm-hmm. um, up until this point. So we would, when people would come to see him, we we had a basket outside of the room that he was in. They'd have to surrender their phones, and we stayed with them throughout the entire time they were in there. Um, because with social media and things being the way it is today, we just felt it disrespectful to have those images out there. Why do you think he was such a draw for people? You know, I don't know. I think it's just the the history of this gentleman. Um, generations of families, you know, have seen him. We have people viewing him today that are in their 80s that came and saw him with their classroom back when they were in fourth grade. So I think it's more a... Uh, Uh, a curiosity, kind of a bewilderment of sorts as to 
why is this guy here? You know, and, and, mm-hmm. and what a lot of people refer to him as, and he, he is, uh, clinically, is, is a mummy. Why is but, he there, and why is how was he mummified? That wasn't standard um, standard procedure, certainly. No, no, not at all. So um, how did he come to be there? It was an emerging mm-hmm. science back in the late 1890s, and it came into uh, the field of battle in the Civil War. Um, they needed, they wanted to find some method to preserve northern soldiers to bring them home so their families could see them one last time. But he wasn't a so, soldier, right? Can you tell me Willie's story a little bit? Yeah, uh, Willie was, we we think, was the first, uh, Mr. Almond, the original Mr. Almond, was the first funeral director to apply this uh, procedure. He found the procedure in a medical journal in a Philadelphia bookstore, a German medical uh, journal in a, in a Philadelphia bookstore, and it was a preservative recipe for um, preserving meat. Um, he applied this on on Willie simply as a matter of preserving him until his next of kin could be located. Mm-hmm. Willie was arrested in 1895 at a fireman's convention here in Reading um, on petty theft and imprisoned, and he, he passed and imprisoned. So his family could not be located. It was very difficult trying to locate his family, his next of kin. So Mr. Amman, that was the only reason Mr. Amman applied this procedure. He had permission from the local authorities to do so. And it, it really came to a point after days and weeks and months had gone by, the state, I should say, demanded of Mr. Amman that he now bury this John Doe. And Mr. Amman petitioned the state to keep Willie in residence because he, quote, unquote, wanted to monitor his experiment Mm. because it was such an emerging science. Why is Stone Man Willie, though? Where did that name come from? Most historical records show him as identifying as James Penn, but there's also accounts that identify him as, uh, or uh, that, that show that he identified as, or gave the name of William Penn. And now you know his real name, right? Can we you do. reveal it? Uh, we are not going to reveal that until oh, after his burial service on Saturday. You don't want to tell us now. I'd rather not, um, in the sense that, you know, we really want to give that to the community first. Yeah. And... You know, we, we we want him to go through this entire ceremony um, up until including Saturday, the conclusion of Saturday, as Stone Man Willie, because that's what he's always been known as. The real name will be revealed on his headstone on Saturday. When you found out his real name, did it surprise you? It did not. It did not. We we knew based on research for years. We could we could tie him to one of three gentlemen, and the one gentleman could be quickly um, excluded because dates didn't line up. The the years were even uh, multiple years apart in, in the sense of lining up with with the, the correct story. So the person so who I he is, I wondered anything about his. Have you learned anything about him? that surprised you beyond his name? Not as far as like um, family history, anything along those lines. Really, there's not much out there at all. Um, I think I did locate what could be a brother that lived in Manhattan. Um, Everything lined up date-wise and what he confessed to his cellmate. But yeah, there's not much out there under his real name. It's it's very, uh, very well unknown as much as it is known. Kyle, I appreciate your time. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you. You're very welcome. Thank you.
Kyle Blankenbiller is the director of the Amon Funeral Home. We reached him in Reading, Pennsylvania. times in your life when you have to take the leap. There are also times when you don't have to, and you probably shouldn't for the sake of your structural integrity, but you do it anyway. That was the case for 104-year-old Dorothy Hoffner this past Sunday when she strapped herself to another, another human being and did this. the sound of Ms. Hoffner jumping out of a plane in Ottawa, Illinois on Sunday in a record-breaking tandem skydive. She's now the oldest person in the world to willingly fling herself out of a plane. Afterwards, she told reporters it was nice to have her feet back on the ground, but not as nice as it was to be falling through the air. An experience she said was wonderful and peaceful, like floating. Here she is making her landing. One hundred and four year old Dorothy Hoffner sticking the landing on her world record breaking skydive in Illinois on Sunday. You've been listening to the As It Happens podcast. Our show can be heard Monday to Friday on CBC Radio One, following the world at six. You can also listen to the show online at cbc.ca slash AIH or on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. I'm Neil Kirksell. And I'm Chris Howden. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.